even with our best friends, our beloved partners. I know money is near the top of the list, and some of you may feel more comfortable if I were giving you a pitch for the pledge campaign right now. <laughs> but I think sex is the most difficult topic and one not often preached about. Sex and sexuality issues are certainly topics that the Religious Institute tells seminarians we ought to address several times a year. In recent years, all Unitarian Universalist seminarians are required to take a course from the Religious Institute or a place like it that addresses ministers' ethics and different aspects of sex and sexuality. Some of my colleagues, though we graduated in 2013, tell me they just don't want to broach that topic in their congregations. Well, but why is it so difficult? We don't seem to do well with several of the bodily functions, waste from the digestive system, nor particulars of the reproductive system. Well, all of these are legitimate and necessary functions in life. But we make jokes or turn up our noses or draw inward with embarrassment. Scatological humor, while usually sophomoric, oh, and who doesn't enjoy a good fart joke? <laughs> it's often part of today's comedy shows. Why? Because we have shame about our bodies that leads to giggling and snickering. Sexual innuendo is pervasive in commercials and televisions and movies and billboards. It's everywhere. And these days, actually, we are way past innuendo. They say sex sells. Now, why is that? Because it is titillating and makes aware that we have secrets and shame about our bodies. I've probably made some of you uncomfortable already, but this is a place I think we need to go in order to become more healthy stewards of our bodies and our relationships. We were not just born that way, ashamed of our bodies and its functions. Though St. Augustine has a complicated argument that says we are born that way, that we are flesh, that flesh is sinful. Therefore, we are sinners even before we are born. That is original sin. I think part of the sorrow of that argument is how it came to be. When St. Augustine was 16 years old in 317 CE, Common Era, when he was 16 years old, he went to a public bath with his father. And while he was there, he had what I will just call an erotic episode in public. Well, his father was very amused and went home to tell his mother, Monica, what had happened, and she was aghast. She was not amused. So Augustine was shamed by his mother at the age of 16. Then he went on to live a life of actual debauchery. 
He lived a life of mistresses and concubines until he had an epiphany that sex was unholy because the passion of our bodies feels uncontrollable. It is of the flesh, and it distracts us from God. St. Augustine was a proponent of the idea that unbridled sexual desire was a sign of rebellion against God and that sex is only honorable inside marriage with the possibility of children. He and other Christian leaders promoted the idea of sexual desire of being too passionately in love or having sex for pleasure or outside of marriage is sinful. These notions seem to have influenced us through the next 18 centuries. I'll tell you, instead of reading volumes about St. Augustine, which I had to do until my eyes practically crossed, <laughs> you can check out an article from a June 2017 New Yorker called How St. Augustine Invented Sex. We can put some blame on the Bible, some on St. Paul, and a heavy dose on Augustine. But when Adam and Eve lost their innocence, we were put on a trajectory to lose ours. I think the quote says, they saw their nakedness and they were ashamed. Millennia later, we are indeed ashamed. Jesus does not say much about sex nor anything about same-sex partners, but at one point he admonishes the disciples to be eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. Some men actually took that literally and castrated themselves. Most likely he was telling his subjects that they needed to focus on spreading his word rather on becoming engaged in romantic or physical relationships. Is this an argument that holds up in today's society? Are we still led to feel that we should be more devoted to religion or moral causes and that having partners or being married gets in the way of our responsibilities? The Bible is contradictory regarding sex and sensuality. And this is probably one of the great causes of turmoil in our times regarding what is right and what is sin. While sin is not a concept we use address very often, we do live in a world that believes in sin. As I said, the Bible is contradictory regarding sex and sensuality. After all, the first commandment is be fruitful and multiply. Obviously, sex was a part of God's plan. Books in the Bible are dedicated to talking about sex. The begats, the term to know is a euphemism for sexual relationship, and those stories are part of the Bible. Song of Solomon, one of the most beautiful books of the Bible, celebrates a romantic relationship in intimate language. According to an article called What the Bible Says About Sex, the Bible offers cautions and restrictions on sexual behavior to avoid false worship 
and destructive desire. In the Hebrew scriptures, which we we used to call the Old Testament, it shows that followers of God lived among other cultures that worshiped sex and enacted it in religious ceremonies. Later, followers of Jesus, the Christians, encountered such rituals and were adamant in clarifying that sex was not how they worshiped God. In addition, the Bible suggests sex can be destructive and these desires can lead to unintended injury. And we see these injuries every day in our lives. We see people being raped. We see unintended pregnancies. We see the transmission of sexually related diseases. There's one author, uh, Pastor Jennifer Wright Moose, who says, there's hardly any comment about same-sex behavior in the Bible, but interestingly, rabbis and early Christian theologians could imagine gender in much more complicated ways than we can. And this idea that I'm about to present um, ties in with what Marcus said about a desire to have a relationship with God. So these ancient scholars, for example, they long to be God's wife. They long to have a physical relationship with God. And they wanted to be welcomed into God's erotic embrace. So what's in the Bible regarding homoerotic encounters is really way more fascinating than one little verse, one little soundbite about gay marriage and what that could possibly suggest. Does that suggest to you that at some point in our ancient history, we were able to have a more nuanced vision about sex and sexuality? The reality is that we are affected by those ideas of ancient, of our ancient heritage. But the truth is that our standards have changed, though we see legislation about our bodies, particularly the bodies of women, particularly the bodies of people of color that are guided by what seems to be ancient law. Author Carol Kuravia writes that other than some admonitions against lust and divorce, Jesus had very little to say about sex, probably because he was so busy healing the sick and hanging out with the poor. When his followers were preparing for his second coming, they were the ones promoting celibacy over marriage. He never did. There wasn't a second coming, but second century couples were expected to stop having sex after they had produced several children. Kuravia goes on to say that in medieval times, the church became deeply involved with controlling people's sex lives. 
virginity and monogamy, monogamy were still prized, while homosexuality could be punished by death. The church also had very specific requirements for what type of sex married couples could have. Since sex was supposed to be for the purposes of procreation, certain positions were banned. And then there were restrictions on what day of the week people could have sex. So not on fast days or feast days for a saint or on Sundays. All right, we are righteous right now. <laughs> Sex was also discouraged when a woman was menstruating, pregnant, or breastfeeding, which considering that there was no birth control could have been a good deal of the time. All of these prohibitions meant that on average, sex between married couples was only legal about once per week, if that. So can we agree that the Bible is one of the most pervasive influences in our behavior and in the legal system. And by the way, I'm not saying that all the influences from the Bible are a negative thing. I'm just asking us to take a, a look at how some of the things in the Bible have come down to us. Ideas about women as chattel, man's dominion over earth and animals, that one person may own another, all are supported by verses in the Bible. Many people in this country and other countries get their moral authority from the Bible, which is then passed down through generations. I suppose we shouldn't be surprised that we have all kinds of mixed messages about sex in our bodies, but I remain perplexed by how bound we are in this country to a kind of physical conservatism that shapes our attitudes and our legal system. There's a website. I, I love the internet. There's a website called The Complete List of Weird Sex Laws in the United States. I didn't look at all of them, but I couldn't help skimming just a little bit. Uh, for instance, in Colorado, keeping a house where unmarried people can have sex is prohibited. In Iowa, no kiss can last for more than five minutes. <laughs> of course, there were more explicit laws that I won't read here. But I think you will find that many of them seem to be directly in line with admonitions from the Bible. The laws of the ancient Hebrews, the laws of the ancient Christians, and the law of the land are all mixed together in a confused amalgam of piety and control. We have bodies that are amazing. We are each differently abled, but each have bodies that function at different levels in an array of remarkable ways. Have we become sensitive enough, capable enough of understanding our own bodies and competent enough to control our own senses of propriety?
that maybe we don't need legislation to shame us into what is considered proper behavior. I believe in humanity. I believe we are each sovereign entities who can make decisions about our own bodies. I believe we are capable of practicing self-affirming acts that free us from the shackles of shame that have been used to subdue us. I believe we can work on being less shy and shamed by our bodies and know to the depths of our souls that sexuality and sensuality are beautiful. May it be so.